A study on judgment. Lots of topics coming up. The first one that we are going to address is this idea of judgment. What is judgment? What does it mean to judge people? What doesn't it mean to judge people? Is there uh, is all judgment bad judgment? Is there good judgment? Um, what do we mean by judgment? All of these questions and more. That is the beginning as we start here. Uh, as we begin, we're going to ask this question, why study? Judgment is one of the more contentious and controversial topics in any separated and doctrinally concerned church. And I say it that way because really what, um, what has often been the line of separated and doctrinally concerned is the line when people begin to uh, try to reconcile this idea of judgment. And when we come to the idea of judgment and we say, all right, judgment means I can't assess or uh, confront about problems that I see. You do you, I do me. At the point that you do you and I do me, how... Where, where, what is accountability at that point? Uh, is it just about the absolute explicit things that we can find in the scriptures? What if we don't agree on those? Do we just have to avoid all those things? And if we're avoiding all of those issues, then what about those issues? If we're not talking about things, then how do we stay, how, how does iron sharpen iron? Um, Commands both to judge and not judge are certain things in the scriptures, right? We also see the emotional nature of interaction surrounding truth and its application. Um, we can feel judged when we're not being judged. You all know that. That's actually somewhat common in separated churches. Ours is no exception. Someone comes in and we have standards. And because they are outside of that standard... They feel uncomfortable. And they, there's a tendency to blame the standard bearers for that discomfort. Even if the standard bearers don't feel any necessary discomfort around you, have not asked you to change, and are not interested in asking you to change, the fact that you feel out of place can add to a level of discomfort, and it can be interpreted emotionally as judgment. Disagreement. If we have disagreements, and those disagreements are on issues uh, of character. So it's one thing if we disagree on uh, aspects of theology, right? Where, yeah, I, I think something, you think something, but it's all kind of in the ether anyway. But what happens when you, dis you and I disagree about things that, that, that touch us, right? That touch the way we live our lives. How is it that you and I can disagree on something that touches the way we live our lives without feeling attacked or interpreting attack? And, it, and it, it used to be that we could do this. But we live in a culture now that, that can't. We have to take sides. And anything, anytime you disagree with me, it is an attack on me. Or anytime I disagree with you, I'm attacking you. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And then we see that as judgment. That because you don't like the way I live my life, 
or because you are telling me that the manner in which I am living, the way that I'm living my life is not best or is perhaps has dangers or whatever the case may be, that that means that you are inherently judging me. And we may both feel very strongly about these things. And you say, okay, well, then there's that. But then there's the idea that, yeah, maybe I am. Maybe what I'm doing is I'm actually opening the scriptures and I'm saying, how do you reconcile it? And as I do that, you say, stop judging me. And I say, it's not me judging you. It's the Bible judging you. How, how, How do I talk to someone about something the Bible says if I can't judge when they're doing it? Can I not confront a brother in Christ and say, you need to stop this because the Bible says you need to stop this? And what would judging them look like versus helping them look like? What would accountability look like versus judgment when it comes to the scriptures? Or is it never judgment as long as I can go to chapter and verse? I can smack someone over the head with this thing anytime I want and say, nope, I'm not judging you because I can go to chapter and verse. What happens if I interpret that chapter and verse differently than you interpret that chapter and verse? Then Should you wonder about judging? Then do we need to be more careful? All of this. And because this is emotionally taxing and difficult, and because, if I may say it this way, there is an element of, and I'm going to use the word subjectivity, but it might not be the right word. Um, let, Let me use a better word. Because you have to be led by the Spirit in this. Which means I could, I could have a situation with two different people of a similar sort, and one of them I need to confront and the other one not. Because there is a measure of subjectivity to this, it becomes difficult. Because these interactions have to be clothed with love, and that means emotional investment and also a lot of emotional exercise. It's a whole lot easier just to lay down a set of rules, say, conform or go away, or lay down no rules and say, do what you will, or have both. Fine, you're fine here, you're, you're, you're not okay here, and then that kind of that middle ground, just avoid that stuff with everything that's in you. Because that's going to mean emotional investment, it's going to mean exhaustion, it's going to mean disagreement, And those things are going to mean people leave and it's going to, you know, it just gets messy, right? It's going to, could could put a wedge between relationships and friendships and family and whatever else. And I remind you again, as with all things interactive, success only comes through humility. If we are going to have a church, if you're going to have interactions with family, with friends, with, with, with the, those in the body of Christ, if you're going to have interactions that will be on a right plane, where you and they are both rightly related to judgment and accountability to both sides, to not judging some things, but judging other things, all of those things, if you're going to have that, then you are going to first have to step into every assessment and every interaction with a determination to be humble. And if both people have that determination, then it will be okay. It may not, and, that, and it will be okay does not necessarily mean that you'll agree, does not necessarily even mean that you will be able to walk together in a um, 
close fashion. Someone might come in and we have a wonderful, humble conversation one with another and at the end of it, they have to go their own way. But if they do end up doing that, it would be because the Spirit says go and it would be with absolutely no hard feelings, only love and respect and a recognition that, that, that there's not going to be a, a, a symbiosis there, but there can still be a, a love, right, and a respect. So keep humility in mind as we talk through these things. Let me see here. Why is this not? Well, maybe that's why. Hmm. Why is this not advancing? Hmm. Okay. Um, well, we'll figure it out. We'll make it work. Uh, important questions then. What is judgment? And just as important, what is not judgment? What does judgment not look like? Can a person think or say someone is doing wrong without judging them? Is that even possible? Is there ever a time or a context when judgment can take place, where it's biblically okay to take place? And if judgment can take place, does that mean it should take place? What other important questions might come to your mind? Uh, are there any others that, that kind of come to your mind immediately that uh, are worth thinking through or things that have been on your mind or, or things that, that, that you know you've, you've experienced before where people have struggled with? What, what other elements of, of, of this area of judgment have you experienced or are you uh, contending with um, that you would be willing to... Add to the conversation. In my own trains of thought, I question myself, and it might be a part of the can someone uh, question is um, it can or does it need to be a certain person? Like, for instance, okay, there's why is it feeling that okay, say there's parents and then there's children. Mm. Good question. And that's an interesting one, um, particularly as it relates to the idea of judging principles versus methods, right? And that's going to be a, a, a big part of this as we continue through discernment in that way. Very good. Other, other, any other thoughts? Sam? Yeah, and that's actually where we're going to start. In, 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 in really, in, in most ways, Matthew 
seven, the judge not that you be not judged, is the big monkey wrench in the whole, in the whole system. Because we, we see a lot of things about discerning truth and this, but then we have this phrase that Jesus used, judge not. If we didn't have that phrase, we wouldn't be debating this at all. Because really, there's no other exhortation other than that the, the, the scope around Jesus' teachings there, which we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in one way, shape, or form. But it is really the scope of Jesus' teachings in that area, in that context, that forms the only monkey wrench to judgment. But we know it's put there to be to, for a reason, right? It's, 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 it's supposed to be there, but so is everything else. And this is where we have to walk that line and reconcile because we know, we know that the Bible doesn't contradict. We know that it's not, and, and, and this is, you know, especially when you think of Matthew 7, you get this, this um, you know, the debates about what it means and what it doesn't, and, and we'll, we'll talk through all of that. And, and, and Think through some of these things, but when we think through that idea, you get the people that are on one side and you get the people that are on the other side. Nope, nope, we can judge as long as we, you know, get the mote out of our eye first. And then others saying, yes, but he says, judge not, right? And, and, and we go through those ideas. There is a way to reconcile it all and we have to find it. That is what we do. This is how you interpret, right? Well, how you interpret is you take all of the things that you have at your disposal and you say, how do these all fit together? Because I know they're all supposed to be here. It's like a puzzle. You can take a puzzle and you can say, well, you know what? I've got all of these pieces here, but I think if I just use half of those pieces, then it's going to be, it'll work. We'll make it work. And you jam all those pieces in and it creates something and you say, there's the puzzle. Well, yes, except none of, you know, you're, you're missing pieces, which means you're missing the picture that God intended. And if I just say, judge not, it means never, never judge. Okay, fine, except that I go to 1 Corinthians in particular. I go to Romans 14. It doesn't work. I can't, I can't reconcile those. I can't reconcile 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 with, you may never judge anything. And so we have to, we have to find out where those pieces fit together. And Matthew 7 will be, of course, the beginning of that journey. Not only is it the introduction to this concept in the New Testament, but it is that great monkey wrench in the gears of this whole process. Good. Anything else? Joel? Right. And, and this idea of definition. And, and that really is, among the well-meaning, that idea of de- defining judgment is oftentimes the difficulty. Now, of course, before the world, when the world goes to Matthew 7-1, they say, ha, ha, you can't judge me. Um, all they're, they're being disingenuous, right? That, that's a whole other ballgame when you get into the, the, the unbelieving world attempting to... Um, repurpose or, or uh, uh, steal biblical doctrine, twist it in order to silence the church. And that works oftentimes too. Amazingly enough, that works oftentimes. But the real question is among those who are believers and who are actually seeking to do what's right, 
See, if, if it were just the typical thing, right, like, like we have with so many other things, like with marriage, let's say. You know, marriage is something where the unbelieving world says something different, and yeah, there's a portion of the church that's gotten, gotten caught in that, but the, the, the true church looks at that and says, that's because they got lost in the world, right? And there's such a clear distinction between what, the, what the, the, the Bible says marriage is and what the world says marriage is that there's not a lot of debate. There just has to be teaching. But it, judgment is not one of those issues, right? We really have to define it. We have to understand what the Bible says. Right, exactly. And so, and, and so then this does become an issue where once we know what judgment is and, and, we, and I say we understand how to, how to practice and not practice it, how to avoid what needs to be avoided and not avoid what doesn't need to be avoided. Um, first off, it's going to be something that then needs to be broadened. Anytime you interact with someone, you can't expect them to understand it as you do. Outside of, the, outside of those who, who agree. But then secondly, um, as I said before, it's, it's a subjective or a spirit-led process. It will take a constant renewal with each interaction and with each relationship to understand where they rest and how, where they rest, how they understand, where they are in their Christian life. All of those things will factor into the extent to which I may or may not Speak up or not speak up, direct or not direct. Um, and, and this, as we'll see in Romans 14, will also factor into the weaker brethren principle. Where is their faith? Where is my faith? So that when we see in Romans 14, let, uh, as it relates to the eating of meat, let not him that eateth uh, despise him that eateth not and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth. So here's a man who has a true conviction about the nature of the word of God and the, his expectations in it and those convictions are real and they're valid. But he cannot judge the brother who's not living and walking that way in that issue and he has to know that too. He has to know that too. And that may change between him and that brother and him and another brother who, in, in, in a case where there is a commonality of recognition of doctrine, well, then you're not living up to what you believe about that doctrine. Now I get to hold you accountable because you and I agree not to, that we should not be eating meat. We agree on that doctrine we agree with this place, and there you are doing something that you know you, you should not be doing in faith. And I'm going to hold you accountable to that until you tell me that this is no longer the faith that you hold. And then we can re reassess this relationship. Wow, right? So on a relationship-to-relationship -relationship basis, this could be different. And I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but the, this is why it's difficult. And this is why the church says, oh, let's just avoid this. Um, we're not going to get through it all tonight. Probably not next week or even the week after. So if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if it's not particularly relevant to the moment and you feel like you're going to derail me, write it down.
And either we get to a point where I say, well, that's it. And you say, wait a minute, my questions aren't answered. Or we come to the relevant point and then you bring your questions or your comments. So this is going to be something where you'll want to be invested in the whole process, thinking through it, asking questions, uh, giving a lot of back and forth. I'm going to try to do this a little bit differently. And, and what I mean by that is I'm hoping to be a little bit more, I'm really bad at this, but I'm hoping to be a little bit more of a moderator than a teacher. Now, there's always a little bit of that on Tuesday nights in Sunday school. But I'm hoping not to just give you, but rather to kind of, for us to walk through it together. You give your thoughts, I give my thoughts. And the, the, the good teachers in this regard are able to allow for that moderation while still guiding it into the direction that it needs to go. And that's where I'm not skilled. But I'm hoping that throughout the course of these, these weeks, not just in this, but in all of these issues, I'm going to try to practice that a little bit. Where I'm moderating, but I'm control moderating it into the direction that it, it ought to go while simultaneously allowing you all to bring the thoughts to bear. Um, good. Um, yeah, I need to, I'll need to fiddle with this before next time. But um, So, continuing with these important questions. How much of the debate over judgment is rooted in a failure to operate under a common understanding of what judgment is and what judgment isn't? And how much of it is the fact that we're actually all determined to judge each other? I think that among well-meaning, honest, and, and, and loving Christians, we're not determined to, lo- to judge each other. We, we're not stepping into um, church with hostility. Now, there are churches that are. And our movement has a tendency to that end of kind of being a hostile group. Not our church directly, but our movement. Of being a hostile group that is, is looking for fault and is troubled when we see things that are outside of our wheelhouse. But as a general rule, we're, Christians aren't, aren't there. We're not, looking for the, we're not looking to pick fights. We're not looking to make people upset. We're not looking to tear people down. So how do we walk that line and not either become people that are looking to tear other people down? Because that can be developed in us. But also not just ignore problems. Because we, we don't want to judge. Who am I to judge? Maybe, maybe you are to judge. We'll, we'll try to work through that. So that's the why. Any, anything else as far as the why? Justifying our time. Joel. It is huge. And there's two aspects to that huge. That the, 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 the definition of judgment can, can be varied and multiple. And the first thing is the Greek. And uh, I, I, I warn you with this. When you study and you, you, know, you have a Strong's Concordance, so you have a, um, whatever you might use, a Thayer's, and you go to the definition, you say, okay, this is the definition. Well, remember, God did not, God did not inspire Strong's. Right? God did not have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then a bunch of study resources all inspired by the Word of God. So where did Strong's or Thayer or BDAG or whoever, 
Where did they get those definitions from? Can, you, can anyone tell me? Where, where did those definitions come from? Joel says interpretation. So our, our, our natural tendency would say, well, it's from these people that know the Greek really well, right? And they know the Greek in the same way that I come to an English speaker and I say, what does this word mean? And the English speaker takes all of their understanding of the English language and the way it's used and whatnot and lays out an idea. So cool means uh, cold to the touch or means that's really neat. Or, and you can go through all of the different idiomatic expressions and, and, and vernacular to define a word. And, and, and we, we, we can do that, but even then... What Joel just said, interpretation or context, is how that happens, right? Strong's and these men, it's not inherently that these were men who knew the Greek so very well. See, because in many cases, what we find is if I go back to classical Greek, there's a resource called Liddell and Scott's, and it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a classical Greek lexicon. And when I go back there and I start looking at a Greek word to get a bigger flavor of what that word means, I'll find things in there sometimes that are very helpful. Oh, yeah, the Bible doesn't use the word in this way, and it means that, and that, that kind of makes sense. It derives from this idea. Okay, that, that gives me more fullness. And the, the word that I like to use as an example for this is the word meekness. If, if, if we look at the word meekness, when I went back to the Liddell and Scots when I, when I was in a, a seminary and I was looking at the word meek, it uh, talked about, and I don't remember where it's from, most of Liddell and Scott, come, it comes from classical literature like um, um, uh, um, Socrates and Plato and, and, and Homer and whatever else, right? All of those, those classical Greek writers. And that, it, it, was in, um, it was in Liddell and Scott's, and I don't remember the classical writer, uh, who connected the idea of meekness to a fire, that a fire and a fire ring was, was called meek because it, it, was, it was under control, Right? So it, it, was, it was described as a meek fire. And that kind of connected some dots for me. Aha, strength under control. All the potential is there of the fire. All of the power and all of the danger and all of the things that fire entails is there. But because it's in this ring, it is under control. It's meek, right? It's a meek fire. And, and that helped me. But as a general rule, even that, what am I doing? I am reading texts. I am seeing how the word is used in texts. And then because I see how the word is used in context, that gives me a fullness to define. So then if we want to know how judgment is defined, when Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged, how do we define it? How did, how, how, how did Strong's or Thayer's, how did they define these biblical words? They went to every place the word was used. They looked at the context. They understood how it was used and they glossed it. They gave the flavor of it based upon the context. So you can do that too. And you'll find if you do do that, you're not always going to agree with Strong's or at least not on the order of things. See, because Strong's will have a one and a two and a three or Thayer's will have one, two and three. And you might just take that first definition and run with it and realize, oh, by and large, actually, that third definition is the one that I see more used more often. Not necessarily number one. Number one might be the most literal, but not really the most idiomatic or the most contextual m many times. So what we're going to do, and this is how you study, if you want to really understand, if we're going to really understand what does judgment mean, then what we have to do is we have to go to the places that talk about judgment and see what, see what it says.
And then we'll just say, this is what it says about judgment. This is when it's good. This is when it's not. This is when we shouldn't do it. This is when we should. This is the spirit in which we shouldn't do it. This is the spirit in which we should. And that's how we're going to define it. And that doesn't mean, however, that we're not going to look at, at, at the Greek a little bit, because we are. Uh, Andrea, is that a hand? Yep, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's a really great concept, and this is going to come up too. Nathaniel asked the question, which we're going to answer a little bit in this series, but I'm also going to preach on it next Sunday night um, because I just I have to get it into the Hebrew series. And what 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 Nathaniel asked in relation to the up and coming judgment series is if grace is this free gift and you get it all right, grace is not a part thing, as we've talked about in our series, but all of Hebrews is about the day of judgment, when we will answer for the things we've done in our bodies, how does that comport with grace? How do we, how, how do we fit those two together? And we're going to talk about it in this series so that we can talk about it. And it would have been nice to get through it tonight because then that could have factored into me preaching uh, on, on Sunday night, knowing where to go with it a little bit perhaps because of what was said. But um, it's so important as I thought through that particularly because of the nature of the book of Hebrews, where chapters 2 and 4 and 6 and 8 and 12 are all warning us about the fearfulness of judgment and the, 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 the necessity of obedience. How do we comport that with what I've been teaching you on grace? And so I want to go through that. But then as you said, which, which is kind of a little bit of that, but beyond that, which is we go back to the Old Testament and the Old Testament can help us understand some concepts of God as it relates to grace. Because God is the same God, right? And he, had, he was gracious in the Old Testament as well. The law was not gracious. The law had no grace in it. But God had grace. And so we can go back. And, and with many theological concepts, you don't want to start on Matthew 1.1. You want to start in Genesis 1.1. And you want to walk through the Hebrew, then the Greek. And that takes a lot longer. But in this particular concept, because of the layer of grace, because of the nature of the Christian church and the change of context... The, the Old Testament will not help us as much as far as one to another. It will help us understand God's grace, and that example can then be um, poured out to others. But this is a concept which has a fundamental uniqueness in the New Testament as it relates to judgment um, that, that we do need to, to reconcile and, and work with as well. This is one of those things that distinguishes the Christian faith. 
is the nature of judgment and of grace. Because in a religious system, judgment is paramount. And hypocrisy is rampant. Because that is how religious systems work. But in a system of grace, things are different. And since we're the only game in town as far as a system, a relational system of grace is concerned, we have to think about things a little bit differently than, we, than, than necessarily what we would see exemplified in, say, the Old Testament law. Uh, and, and Jesus will come into that, won't he? Jesus will, will, will talk about this in John 7 and 8. The first one, I think I'm trying, I don't, I don't know if I've got them in the right order. Uh, the first one being when Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. And they're angry at him. And, and Jesus says, you're condemning me for healing on the Sabbath day. But if a child is born on the Sabbath and on the eighth day he's circumcised, will you circumcise him on the Sabbath? Absolutely you will. So how come you can cut flesh on the Sabbath day, but you can't heal flesh on the Sabbath day? And then the second one will be the woman taken in adultery. And they'll bring and say, cold, hard facts. This woman was caught in the very act. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. We've got to reconcile with that. What's Jesus teaching there? Where's he going with that? What is he calling us unto? What are we thinking about? So all of that will factor in. And then the question is, should we go back to the Old Testament? How far should we go back? Unto what end should we go back? And where will that help us? Because we don't want to just ignore the Old Testament. Um, but we have to relate ourselves properly to it. And in this case, I think we need to understand the New Testament concept before we start working backwards. Usually we'd say go from the Old Testament into the New. In this case, we might need to start at the New and work our way back. Good. Excellent point. Sam. Yep. Right. Yeah, authority factors in. Is, uh, how much authority? And then also public, the public nature. A public, a public fault might demand a public rebuke, right? In order to fix the problem. Um, <laughs> that, that idea always brings me back to the Rogers' very first Sunday school here. Um, 
where uh, we were talking through an issue and, and uh, there's a, a, a woman in the church who, as, after I said something, she, ra- I, you know, she raised her hand and I called on her and she said, uh, I, don't, I don't think you should say that. You, you shouldn't have said that. And because there are kids here and it was a, an, an issue surrounding mar- uh, martyrdom and, and such. And, and I, you know, handled the situation, but then throughout the rest of that service, I was sitting there saying, that woman just rebuked me before Hall. <laughs> um, how do I handle that, right? And I thought, okay, so, so then I walked through the process, and I guess I'm getting a little, but anyway, then I had to walk through the process of, okay, do I just confront her? Well, here's the thing. There's this brand new family here. They've never been here before. If I confront her individually, and then we figure out how we're going to deal with this, what if they never come back? We set an example. Um, they've seen something there. And if they never come back, then there's never a way to reconcile that. So, so I, I did a public rebuke um, after the service. And uh, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. But it was a public offense. Everybody who was there needed to be a part of undoing that for the sake of the doctrine, right? So all of these things factor in. And, um, and, and, and as Sam says that, we're going to walk through these, and I, I've got verses listed. As you're going from week to week through this, we're not in any hurry. If you've got a case study on a certain issue, or if we are getting toward the end and, and, we have, and, and, and there's more things to factor in, let's talk about it. Get the passage together. If, if, if you want, you can shoot me an email so we can cover it the next week, and I can put together some slides. If we want to just talk about it, just... Hey, pastor, let's talk about this passage, too. Let's talk about judgment, authority, whatever it might be in this passage. And we'll walk through it and we'll see if that particular passage aligns with what we understand. Or maybe it's going to add something new to the mix. And we say, wait a minute, before we finish on judgment, we've got to factor in this other thing. How does that fit with everything else that we've talked about? So be really interactive in this. Help, help this along and we'll just take as long as it takes to, to, to work through everything. A lot of these passages, once we get through the, kind of the foundation of laying the, the definitions, you know, we can get through five or six passages a night, perhaps, as we just walk from, okay, this is what happened here. This is where, where it is. This is what judgment took place or what didn't, or this is what he says about judgment. Let's add that to the definitions. Let's add that to the thoughts. And let's reconcile them together. All right, we've reconciled those. Now let's go on to the next one, right? And we're just going to do a bunch of that. So if you've got one, if I skip one, if we miss one, whatever, raise your hand and we'll talk about it. And if we can't talk about it that time, then I'll, we'll talk about it next time we'll prepare. Um, because all of these things do factor in and there's a lot of complications. How do we handle... Not just those that have authority, but those who un- under whom we are, you know, whom, how do we handle those who we are under their authority, right? Not just they have authority, but they have authority over me. Maybe I am not in the place to judge them. Even if it's valid, maybe it's not my place. We'll talk through all that. What else? I mean, so we've basically dedicated the entire night tonight simply to figuring out where we want to go with this, right? And, and discussing 
the nature of it. And, and, and that alone gives us insight into just how complicated of an issue this is. And in that this is a complicated issue, don't expect that we're all going to agree on everything. We've already talked about approaching it with humility. And then after we've approached it with humility, there might need to be a nice layer of grace that overshadows it all. And then most certainly among those with whom, as you take these things and you go live them, with whom they'll interact. So we've got 10 minutes left uh, in, in uh, our typical time. I think we can get through the words, and then next time we'll just start digging through the passages. And if we finish a couple minutes early, that's all well and good. So I'm really only going to introduce you to three words. That, that, that second letter there is actually a row. Uh, it's, it would be what would be in our language a P. In Greek, it's a row. Um, it's a little bit of an awkward font, so my apologies for that. But now that you know it's a row, um, uh, it, 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 you should be able to uh, handle that just fine. So krino is the word there. And then we have anakrino and katakrino. And this is the verb forms. Now, anytime a noun, adjective, whatnot comes up, it would not be in this form. It would be krisis, but, or, or a variation of the like. And then we can think about other words. But as it relates to the New Testament and the idea of judgment, this word krino and its various forms with all of these other prefixes is really the word in question here. So we, we walk through it a little bit, and this word krino means, and again, this would be a Strong's and a Thayer's kind of mishmash, to distinguish, to decide, to separate, to select, to have an opinion, to pronounce judgment concerning right or wrong, an opinion concerning right and wrong. It can also mean a judge, like, like, like the, the man who is, actually has the governmental or biblical authority to judge. Uh, and, and of course, that would be an, an, a noun form, but the idea of that person exercising judgment. He is ruling, he is judging. And it can also be to dispute. As you and I uh, disagree about something, we are judging it, right? You're judging it, I'm judging it, and together we are judging it. We're judging it differently, we are disputing. It can mean that too. So you can see that there is a breadth of idea as it relates to this idea, and this is exactly what Joel said, that when we, when we open the New Testament and we see the word judge, and you say, well, it could, could be any Greek word, so you go back and you see the word krino, okay, that doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about judge not lest you be judged, judgment, Maybe it just means discernment. Maybe it just means having an opinion. And you say, well, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, so I can't have opinions anymore. Human can't live that way. It's impossible. It's, it's untenable. Well, I can't govern or I can't rule. All right, well, you know, pastor cannot judge the church. Well, now, now it's anarchy. Distinguish, decide. Pastor, should we get red hymnals? Should we get blue hymnals? Judge not, lest ye be judged. No decisions here. Roll the dice and let, let someone else judge for us. We'll call them and say, we can't judge, so you've got to judge. Send us whatever color you like. That doesn't work, right? So that's not what it means. That's not what judge not, lest ye be judged means. And so we'll let context help us there. This word is pretty often uh, used in the New Testament. About 100, a little bit more than 110 times we find this word used. Uh, as far as the way the King James translators translated the word, and of course this is the King James, other translations might use different words, 
but they use some form of judge, judge, judging, judged, um, will judge, some form of judge 88 times. So the King James translators felt as though judge was the best English word for this Greek word krino. However, we do also see um, five times some form of the word condemn, condemning, condemned. We see two times where, uh, uh, and this is Corinthians, going to law against a brother. Don't go to law against a brother. That word there is just the word judge. Don't judge a brother before unbelievers. They, they interpreted it or translated it, go to law. Sue. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. If a brother sue you, right? Um, or if a person. Uh, I, I have concluded they're wrongly spelled, but that should be concluded, not colluded. Um, in Acts 21, we see the word sentence in Acts 15. We see seven times some variation of the word determine or determined. Uh, two times some variation of the word to call in question. We see the word esteemeth. And this is in that passage of, of eating meat. Some esteemeth it right, others esteem it not, right? Um, avenged in Re Revelation 18, verse 20. This is the same word. Uh, ordained in Acts chapter 16, verse 4. To judge something, to ordain it to be true, right? And then thought. Quite literally, just the idea of thinking is how the King James translators glossed it in Acts chapter 26, verse 8. All of these were variations that the King James translators felt were appropriate for this word within various contexts. Now, if we were going to do a deep, deep dive study in, in a more um, together, what we would do is we would literally go through all 110 plus of these. We'd walk through each one. And this is what I do when I do a deep word study. Go through them all. See what they say. Compare them to all of their other, uh, other variations. Compare them to the noun variations. Compare them to the adjective variations. Compare them to the, um, the other glosses that we'll see that, that have um, um, prefixes on them. Go through it all. Look into the Old Testament. What word is translated in the Old Testament? How did they see it in the Old Testament? How did the Jewish mind regard it? Put it all together into context and then start to make some determinations, right? We're not going to do all that together, though. Um, uh, so that's krino. The next word is ana krino. Ana is a prefix that means up or among or again. Once again, you see that even this prefix can mean different things, right? Again versus up. Up would be its primary, but again is a common one, such as, say, Anabaptist, right? What does Anabaptist mean? Anabaptizo, to baptize again. That's where that comes from. That's the prefix, ana, right? Uh, and so we have this idea of ana meaning again. Uh, and then, of course, krino, to judge, discern, to think. Now, please be careful. This is one of these Greek hints here. Just because Greek takes two separate words and mashes them together does not mean that the definition of that word is in, in always what those two words mean mashed together. Anakrino does not inherently mean to judge again or to judge upward. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Now, it might, and there's a reason, there's some sort of connection there, but the connection is not always a one-to-one -one simple thing. And this is something that Greek students can, get, can really get confused with, you know, and we talk about those things all the time. Meta noeo. Meta means to change. Noeo means your mind. 
So metanoia o, to change one's mind, that is how we define repentance. Now, one of the reasons why we, change, we, we define it that way is because of the Greek word metanoia o. But we can't bank on that. We have to go to the context and see if that makes sense. Because contextually, it may not mean that just because metanoia o is the mishmashing of two words, meta, change, and noia o, mind. And we can do this in English as well, where we have a couple of words that kind of feel like they get mashed together, but the end word means doesn't mean have anything to do with those two words that seem to be mashed together. There aren't any coming to mind, um, but, but maybe you can find some this week and we can talk about that. Um, I guess we could talk about parkways, highways, right? That, I guess that's the, kind of a typical one. Yeah, highway, right? A highway. If, if, if somebody in a, in a thousand years were doing what many of our pastors as well as laymen do to Greek, well, it was a highway. That means it was a road that was very elevated. You know, they, whether that was elevated in their mind or elevated, you know, because it's a highway, right? And high means high and, and, and doesn't mean anything like that, right? So we have that in English too. Be careful with that. That being said, this can help us. So we'll take those and we'll kind of try to get a little bit of insight. So this is a form of superlative, adding emphasis to the idea of judging. Judge up, judge again, right? That's sort of an idea. Not just to judge, but to scrutinize. Go a little deeper. Possibly. Sometimes we see these words and they almost seem like they're used interchangeably and we just have to admit we've lost the distinction. So that's anacrino. This one's found 15 times in the New Testament. About 15. I think it's technically 17 or something. Um, this says, according to this, 16. The reason why I say about is because unless you go through and actually look at each one, I use cheats. And this part, the particular cheat that I tend to use for this is Thayer's. So if you ever have a Thayer's, Thayer's actually gives you all of the different glosses and how many times they're used. But um, if there's, in the King James, if there's a, a, a separated gloss, so like, um, let's say, you shall not be rightly condemned. He might have be and condemned as, as separate. Be one time, condemned one time. And so if you say, oh, 117 times, well, yeah, except being condemned are actually the same usage. But Thayer might break them up. That's not the best example, but um, he might break them up, in which case be condemned should really be jammed back together if I'm giving you statistics. So I say about here. Um, This word, six times examine. Six times judge. Okay, judge was 88 times for Crino. So we know that that one was judge. Um, with this one, they used examine just as many times as judge. So this one has the idea, a little bit more of the flavor, if we allow the King James translation to have an authority in our lives, which we have, of, of scrutiny. A little bit more, not the idea of just determining, but scrutinizing something, testing it, checking it out, examining it. Um, Asking, two times. Discerned, one time in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And then searched in Acts 17.11. And then finally, kata krino. Kata is a uh, prefix that means down or against. Also according to, depending on the part of speech it's with. And then krino, which means to judge. So to judge against, right, would be the literal idea there. Um, And this does seem to carry the idea of to pass a sentence or to discern something in that way. So this would be like to um, not just to be the judge, 
but then to actually lay down the judgment, right? So the judge is taking all the facts and he's judging them all. And then at the end, he katakrinos, he sentences, he lays out the judgment, sort of the flavor of this. And as we look into the New Testament, uh, and uh, um, 17 times out of the 19 times it's used, it's condemned. And then two times it's damned. So the King James gave a very consistent gloss of this word, which is condemn, to lay down a sentence, right? Now, again, if you don't have the time to go through 110 plus 17 plus 16 plus uh, 19 um, times to go through all of those, going to Thayer's, seeing how the King James translated it in all those times, and then allowing that to give you a, a nice fairly rounded idea is a nice shortcut. Because the King James translators did such a good job at glossing, that's a, that, that's a viable shortcut uh, if you don't have the time or the inclination to go through them all uh, and you don't like just locking yourself in a room and studying for hours on end. Same thing with the Old Testament. You go find the words that, that correspond. You say, well, pastor, how do I find those words? There's a couple of ways. Of course, you can just uh, open up your Strong's and check for judge. But another really handy way to do it is to use the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So what you can do is you take the words that you found in the New Testament that are relevant, you go find out where those Greek words show up in the Old Testament, and then you find the Hebrew word behind the Greek words in the Old Testament, and then you track down the Hebrew word from there. And that way you are able to connect Greek thinking to Greek thinking, so that you know that the word that you're trying to find in the Hebrew is the word that the Greek mind corresponded it to. So that you have a little bit better likelihood of finding the Hebrew word that actually corresponded to the Greek word that you're looking at. And that's, that's a way that you can do that. I don't know if that made sense. Did that make sense? Yeah. Greek New Testament to Greek Old Testament, then the word in the Greek Old Testament to the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, so those are our three words. Krino, anakrino, katakrino. These are the three that I'm going to focus in on. Uh, not necessarily all the word judge, but those will be the three variations of the word that I'm primarily going to focus in on. As we continue the study, I might a couple more might bubble up to the top, and we'll talk about them, add them to the list, and then work on them as well. But that's, those are the three variations that, through my study, um, have bubbled up to the top as being most relevant to the, the topic at hand. Any questions on the Greek? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.